There are few things, if any, in this life that are more special and more glorious, potentially, than a wedding. The bride and groom, the wedding rituals, many people dressing up and coming together for the grand event. Now, as we saw in the video, it doesn't hurt to also have tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in a professional production crew. Uh, and if you have enough money and production expertise, maybe you can create that type of wedding celebration and upload it for the world to see. But that doesn't take away from the glamour and glory that we can still feel when we watch in anticipation for what they're getting ready for. However, even if you don't have tens of thousands of dollars, weddings are still wonderful events. And they're still glorious moments for the wedding couple, for the wedding party, for the parents, for the close friends, and their families, but especially for the bride. There's something about a wedding, and there is something even more mysterious and glorious and wonderful about a bride on her wedding day. Just this week at our dinner table, we were, we'd had a conversation with some friends about perilous times we were driving in the car. Uh, we had dinner out with some friends, and so we were telling them about the stories and the times when Julie has been a little or a lot anxious because of weather conditions having lived in Michigan and just some of the times uh, we've been out. She doesn't love inclement weather, let's just say that. Um, but, but one of those nights was actually our wedding night. Now, we got married in December in Michigan, so, right, what were we going to expect, huh? A blizzard all, all evening. Uh, we didn't know it inside, what was really going on outside. We found out when we attempted to drive home, and so... We started recounting that story, but then quickly Julie turned the tenor of the conversation from the driving conditions to just recounting to our children there around the dinner table that night. Now, it's been almost 19 years, but Julie just kind of went into her, her memory bank and started talking about what it meant to be a bride almost 19 years ago. She shared with the family, and I may have known this, I don't know if I knew this acutely, that this is the happiest day of her life. I won't say the best day, there might have been better, I don't know, but she said it was definitely the happiest day. She talked about having all of the wonderful people in our life at that time together there in one place. She talked about everybody's sincere joy, the dancing, and being personally celebrated like never before in her life and honestly never since. And while it was almost 19 years ago, her words and her descriptions took us back. And it reminded me as I was writing this message here a couple days later of the potential glory and power of a wedding. And the focal point of every wedding, as we know, is, of course, the bride. It's her day. She wears white, and nobody else is supposed to, right? Did you know that Glamour magazine just re-emphasized this in an article back in July? Don't wear white to a wedding if it's not yours, Okay? Still the rule. She, the bride, in white, makes her grand entrance. And what does everybody do in response? We stand. We stand in anticipation of her coming down the aisle. Now, the Bible also talks about a number of brides and weddings. In Genesis, we read a beautiful account of Rebekah as the bride for Isaac, the chosen blessed son of Abraham. Later in the Old Testament, we meet Ruth, who's a destitute widow, 
really in that day and age has no hope of anything because her husband has passed, and she gets to get remarried to Boaz. It's a beautiful story of a wedding and redemption in the life of a woman who becomes a bride a second time. Jesus' first miracle in the Gospels happened where? At a wedding. Because a travesty had happened. They had run out of wine, the beverage that was going to make the event the event. And Jesus steps in to save the wedding. And finally, the Bible specifically refers to the church, the followers of Christ, the body of true believers here on earth as his bride, the bride of Christ. And that is what we are talking about this morning and in our current series, what the church was meant to be. You see, our goal here at Rooftop is to be followers of Christ who make followers of Christ. It's written on the entryway by the, the lobby door. And we do the best as a church. We can do that within a healthy context of a healthy church. But then we ask the question, well, Jeremy, what is a healthy church? What does that look like? How should a church look and function? I mean, does the Bible really tell us in any detail what that's supposed to be? And it does. It gives us specifics, but it also gives us a bunch of images, a bunch of illustrations, metaphors. Now, this is important because we're in the process of preparing a team over the next year to launch, to plant a new church, a, a, a child church with Jacob and his team. And so addressing this, understanding this, get a view for what the church is and should be is really important is the reason that we're going through this series. And there are many metaphors about the church in the Bible. The church is a body. Jacob talked about that several weeks ago. The church is a family. Matt talked about that last week. And today, this morning, we're talking about the church as a bride. Now, why is this important, this bride image? Why is it important that we understand that the church, we collectively, are seen as the bride, the bride of Christ? Well, one, one, it should help us to view ourselves and each other differently and more reverently. When we're at a wedding, we act differently. We dress up. We compose ourselves differently. It's not about us. It's about the bride. And there's a certain reverence that goes with that. There's a little bit of that that should happen within the church. When we think about us being part of a bride. We're collectively the bride. And there's a, there's a really big party ceremony connected to that just like we view a bride on our wedding day. And secondly, it will help us understand better our own relationship with the bridegroom, Jesus, as members of his church and part of his bride. Jesus is the bridegroom who cares for his church, just like the groom seeks to care for his bride. And this morning, I hope we get a sense of Jesus' love and adoration and care for each of us as part of his bride. But before we can delve any deeper into that metaphor, we need to first take a moment to understand what it was like to get married back in biblical times. Now, there are some similarities, but there are some differences. And so we're just going to cover kind of that marriage process back in the ancient Jewish world. So in the ancient Jewish world, it was a little different than it is in modern-day America. But similar to today, there were three general steps, three general components. The first is what they call betrothal. Then there was a betrothal period, and third was the wedding ceremony and feast. Now these correlate, at least in structure, 
to modern day. We don't have a betrothal, we have an engagement that includes usually a proposal of some sort. We have an engagement period that is a time between the proposal and the wedding. And then we also have a wedding ceremony and reception as well. So it's not too hard for us to draw some initial parallels between then and now, even though it's been a couple thousand years. But let's go back and look at each of these pieces to understand a little bit more deeply what was going on. The first is the betrothal. Now, the betrothal isn't just a will-you-marry-me moment. In biblical times, the betrothal was the actual legal ceremony that joined a man and a woman, a husband and wife, to be together. You were betrothed, you were committed, and you were legally married at that time. Now, what are some differences? Well, they do not move in together. There is no sharing of life together at the betrothal. There is no physical intimacy. They're separate. They don't know each other yet. They have not come together to consummate their marriage. They're bound by all marriage laws and expectations, and the Jewish, in the Jewish world, they had, we have some laws connected to marriage legally, financially, custodially regarding children, but they had even more stringent laws of what it meant to be married and the consequences of breaking a marriage covenant. All those were in place when you were betrothed. We propose today, we get engaged, but that engagement is not legally binding. And if something bad happens, heaven forbid, during the engagement, what do we do? We call off the wedding. That's the terminology we use. We, we call it off. Cancel the plans. We might be out some deposits and some other money that we've put down. Deal with the heartbreak. But we call the wedding off, and it's done. In biblical times, they had to take a more formal step after the betrothal. They actually had to get a divorce. We see this in Matthew chapter 1 in the story of Mary and Joseph. Remember, Mary and Joseph are betrothed, and all of a sudden, what happens to Mary when the angel comes to her and says what? You will give birth to the Messiah via the Holy Spirit, and Mary's impregnated by the Holy Spirit without ever coming into physical contact with Joseph. She goes along, it's starting to show. She tells Joseph, oh, Joseph, by the way, I'm pregnant because God, an angel came to me and I'm carrying the, the son of God. <laughs> Imagine if you're Joseph and you hear that news, like what in the world? And the Bible says in Ch uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, he was an honorable man. She'd obviously been unfaithful to him. And so he made arrangements to put her away or to divorce her quietly because he did not want to make public for her sake and maybe for his what had happened. Now, the angel visits him that evening and stops him from going through that process and tells him, oh, by the way, Jesus is an embryonic baby in the womb of your soon-to-be wife, which is a crazy thought unto itself, isn't it? The Lord Jesus was just a little embryonic child just blows my mind. So don't divorce her. But don't marry her yet either because she has to give birth 
still a virgin to fulfill the prophecy. And so we see in that day that betrothal was a big deal. Betrothal was the legal ceremony that connected a man and a woman together for the marriage life that would yet come. Now what does betrothal look like for the church as a bride? We're going to correlate back each of these points to the church and to Jesus. Well, the betrothal moment happened first on the cross when Jesus was crucified for us and our sins. Okay? We're going to get a little into the old school, ancient world contract covenant. Blood was shed any time a covenant was signed. You come together with somebody in a financial agreement or business agreement or some agreement. You take an animal. You would stand together, put your hand on the animal, and you would slice the animal's neck. They killed animals. They sacrificed them. They ate the food. That was just how it was in that day. But the animal who was sacrificed, the animal whose blood was shed, was not an earthly lamb, but the lamb of God, also known to us as Jesus. And when he's, his blood shed on the cross, he wrote his signature on this heavenly marriage document between him and his people, those who would know him, those who would love him, those who would believe in him, those of us who would yet follow him, his church. That was the marriage license, the legal document. And each of us, when we come to that point of realization that we are sinners, separated from God because of our sin and our choices and our own self-centeredness, and we recognize that there is no way for us to achieve and to, to, to do away with that sin, that we are left wanting, in great peril before God, guilty. That's when we cry out and say, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe you did that for me. I receive by faith that blood. And we are written into the bride, the fellowship of the bride, and married to Jesus. I don't know if you look at your relationship with Jesus that way, your faith in Christ that way, but we are very much married to the Son of God. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, 17. He says this, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We are literally united with Jesus by faith when we place our faith and trust in him and become children of God. That's the betrothal. The second point, the second period is the betrothal period. And this is the period of time between betrothal up to the actual wedding. Now, unlike the common practice of today, the couple does not buy a home and move in together and kind of get started on what married life is going to be like. In fact, it was very likely that the bride and groom saw very little of each other. There was a lot to do. This was what we call preparation time. Now, we prepare today, usually when we're engaged for whatever life we're going to come together to join. But in that day, preparation looked a lot different. The groom, he sets about working to establish a home and a, a means to provide for his family, which looked much different then than it does now. He would often go away, and he'd be responsible in many cases for what's called a dowry. A dowry is a financial lump sum, a gift that would have to be given to the father and to the family when you take the, the daughter as your bride. 
Because that daughter was a functional part of that home. She was working. She was contributing. She was helping that family live and survive and flourish. And when you took that child, that adult now, child from that family, you left them deficient. And so you gave them a dowry, a gift, in place of this very necessary person that you were taking from their home. That was the first reason. The second reason was this. That dowry, that financial gift showed the family that you were capable of working and earning a sum so that they knew that you were worth, worthy and trustworthy to provide for their daughter. Does that make sense? You're working, you earn, you save, you collect, and you give, and while you're, you're deficient that amount of money, they know that you got that somehow. And it's likely you got that because you have the character to be a husband and future father. And so the dowry also sent a message to the family that this man will take care of our daughter. But the groom wasn't the only one who was working and preparing in this time. The bride, she had a responsibility. Once she was brought together, she was making and collecting items that would be necessary in the home. They didn't go to Home Depot or Lowe's and walk through with their credit card and just, okay, there's the stove I want, there's the fridge, there's this, there's that, and we'll pay for it for the next 10 years on our credit card. No, they actually had to, she had to make, she had to acquire, she had to trade and barter all the things that they would need for when that wedding day came, when they two could become one. They both were busy preparing. Now, what does this betrothal period look like for us today as the church? Well, this is the period that we are in currently. We are currently in the betrothal period. Jesus talks about this period in Luke chapter 5. He's asked a question about why his disciples weren't fasting. Okay? Now, a little review so you know. The fact that Jesus had 12 disciples, he was considered a rabbi, called rabbi, which is a religious leader of the day. And the fact that he had a group of people follow him around, that sounds weird to us, but that was actually fairly common for rabbis and religious leaders back in biblical times. A rabbi would choose you or you would request of them and you'd follow them and he would teach you. You would learn from him. You'd be a student, kind of living with them as they moved around the countryside and did whatever it was that rabbis did in addition to teaching. And that time together would prepare you potentially for a future religious service. Well, Jesus had his own set. John the Baptist had his crew, who was Jesus' cousin. He was a rabbi. You had other Pharisees, religious leaders had their crew. But Jesus' were different. Evidently, we learn from the scripture that these other students, disciples, they would fast. And they would deny themselves food because that was part of the preparation process. That was part of the self-denial and the spiritual growth process to becoming who they were wanting to become in service to the rabbi. But this is what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 2, verses 33 and 35. They, the people, said to him, Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? This is the key verse, verse 35. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. When Jesus was with the disciples during that ceremony time, setting up, no, no fasting. But he says, but when the bridegroom leaves, then will be the time for fasting. 
Then will be the time for self-discipline. Then will be the time for rigorous preparation. Jesus foreshadows that in those verses. Jesus knows that he will leave his disciples. In fact, he will leave them someday soon. He will go away. He will ascend into heaven and go away as the bridegroom leaves the bride for that betrothal period. He tells them as much in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. They're at the Last Supper. The next morning, Jesus is going to give his life on the cross. But this is what Jesus says. He says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The groom goes away for a time. He's there. He establishes his covenant. He seals the deal. He marries his bride, the church, and gets them started. And then he what? He goes away. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. This is that moment. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been with his disciples now for 40 days, and it's time for him to ascend. And Luke, the author of Acts, writes this. They, the disciples, gathered around him, and they asked him, Lord, are you, going, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this when it's all going to happen? You're going to make everything right. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. The Father has set the date of the wedding. It's not for you to know his time. And verse 9, he says this, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. Imagine the sadness and the, oh, he's really gone. And they were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them, angels. They said this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He will return. And that's how it was. The bride didn't know when the bridegroom was going to return in this betrothal period. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't even have hardly letter writing. Hey, I will be coming. Sometimes you just saw the groom with his party arriving. And so you, the bride, had to be ready. Jesus tells a parable called the ten virgins. Five of them were ready, five of them weren't, for the returning bridegroom. The impetus here is for the, the bride to be ready, to be preparing, to be doing the things we need to do because the groom is going to return. It's imminent. Paul is concerned for the church as the bride of Christ, and he, he addresses them several times. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, this is what Paul says. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. <laughs> that, the, the laughter was mine. I think that he meant that as a joke. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul had preached the gospel to these people. He had led them into a relationship with Christ. And how does he describe it? He says, I had betrothed you to the husband. 
to Jesus. When you believed, you became joined with the bride of Christ. He says it right here. Verse 3, though, he continues. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. As the bride of Christ, our objective is a pure and simple devotion to Christ. That's our primary purpose. But he's concerned, as he should be, as we should be, because so many things do what? They seek to redirect us from that pure and simple devotion to Jesus. How easily are we swayed to be devoted to other things, to lesser things, family issues, occupational issues, personal issues, just distraction, maybe some sorrow and some pain medicated by possibly pharmaceuticals, possibly just entertainment inundating ourselves, as is one of the biggest temptations in our society today, just noise to distract. Paul wanted them to maintain pure and simple devotion to their groom. And then later, Paul speaks in the most definitive correlation about the husband and wife and Christ and his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 32, he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Not only did Jesus die to establish the marriage covenant, but then he sent his spirit to work in us, the church, the bride, so that we can be the glorious bride, ready, prepared for that day of his return, for that wedding day. That's what's happening right now in each of our lives. We're in that preparation period. And Jesus wants nothing more. Maybe he wants us to be happy, but he wants us more to have the joy of the Lord because of our faith and our understanding that the relationship he's made for us and what is yet to come. The groom is not here. The groom has not yet arrived. We should be fasting. There should be some discomfort. There should be some labor on our part, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because we're simply trying to get ready. And my fear in my own life is, am I, is this, am I expecting that this is heaven? Do I have a vision and a passion and an enthusiasm for what is yet to come? Because how often do I think about what is yet to come? How often do I think about the groom returning? I know I struggle with that. No, no, what do I got to do today? Okay, I got to make sure I got that. I got to make sure I got this together. I want, I want this family member to be good. Okay, the, the, the kids are starting to head towards college. What am I going to do? And my mind gets consumed with lesser things. Where is my simple devotion and enthusiasm for the coming of the Lord? Paul continues in Ephesians 5.32 when he describes this. He says, this mystery, he's talking about the church and Jesus, the husband, the wife, the groom, the bride. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then there's the third component in the wedding process, and it's the wedding itself, which includes a ceremony and feast. Now, their ceremony wasn't so much like our ceremonies. Our ceremonies are a big deal, as you saw in the early video. They can be. They don't necessarily have to be, but we've chosen culturally to make them big deals. I don't know where the, for us, we'll have a ceremony, and then we'll have a break, 
and then some period of time for pictures and trans transporting ourselves to another location, and then we'll have a reception. I think the whole thing back in the day happened together. The wedding ceremony and the party were one big shindig, okay? So ours, again, is a little different. In their day, though, the groom would just return with his wedding party. And when the groom came with his family, with his friends, with his animals, with his household and what he was bringing to the partnership, the bride, she had to be ready to go. She couldn't say, oh, hold on, you're here. I, I need till Tuesday. Can you guys just camp on the outskirts of the village for three days? I got a couple more items I got to put together. No, they're there. It's time for the party. And so the bride had to be ready. She wasn't going to get notice. That was part of the diligence of the bride. Well, what does this mean with, regarding, with regard to the church? Well, there's, there's a beautiful verse in Revelation that we're going to get to here in a moment. A lot of people don't like to touch Revelation. I know it's weird. But there's some not weird parts of Revelation that are amazing. The Bible gives a very vivid and clear picture of what this will be for the church. First, Revelation and other passages tell us that, yes, the groom, Jesus, will return. He will return. He's going to return. He's coming back for you and for me if we are truly the church. He has not forgotten us. He has not left us. He has not turned a, a deaf ear towards us. He is waiting in anticipation for their father to say, it's the son, go. Go and get them and bring them to me. That is yet to happen. That is a reality. And I'm pretty confident that all of us in this room struggle to remember that each and every day. That the groom is coming. And he's coming in a very powerful and commanding way. Secondly, after he comes and he takes his bride to church, you know what there's going to be? There's going to be a party! There's going to be a party like none the earth creation has ever known. It's going to be millions and millions of people there who are part of the body of Christ, but we're not going to be sitting in the cheap seats. It's going to be a party, and there will be no cheap seats. We're all going to be there fully present with the presence of God, with the sun. The Bible says, lit up brighter than the sun in our own sky, and yet we'll be able to gaze upon him. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, talks about this event very clearly. Then I heard, excuse me, verse 6 through 9, then I heard what, was, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Amen? Amen. And his bride has what? Has made herself ready. Has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Yours and ours obedience, yours and our struggle against the flesh, yours and ours daily fight to not give in to sin, to not give in to despair, to battle each and every moment. That's the getting ready. That's the preparing. 
Verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There is going to be a banquet unlike any of us could ever imagine. That's part three. It's the wedding and the ceremony. That's what it looks like for the church. That's what it looks like for the church to be betrothed, to be in the betrothal period, and to be married. We're in the betrothal period. That's where we're at right now. The Bible directs us. And yes, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus signed that marriage license. But you know what? That blood on the license is still wet. It's not gotten old. It's not gotten stale. It's not chipped off the document. It's still as fresh as it was that day he signed it. And he's coming. He's coming for us. So how are we preparing ourselves for the return of the groom? And that's my close for us. We need to ask that question, each of us personally. How are we preparing? One, do you love? Are you loving and looking for the return of our Lord? There's a phrase called Maranatha that the church has historically used when life wasn't so opulent and blessed, when life was hard and difficult, and you didn't know where your meal tomorrow was coming from. And the the government and the, the, the world around you would take advantage of you as a Christian, and they would say to each other, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Are we saying Maranatha? Are we saying, come, Lord Jesus? This life, it's pretty good. I think I, no, no, doesn't compare. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And when he comes, were he to come today, are we ready? Are you ready? Will there be any regrets? When we're anticipating someone important to come, what do we do? We stand. So I'd like for all of you to stand with me today as we pray. And join with me in spirit as I pray this prayer to our groom. Lord Jesus, you are the bridegroom. You've given us this direction and this guidance in your your word and the Bible, and it's there for us to read, and we understand it, at least in part. But there's parts we don't get but we do see that you promised to return. And there's so much in our lives that we may yet struggle with. There's so much about this world that we may not fully understand. But you ask us to be prepared. You ask us to say, come Lord Jesus. And you want our lives to reveal that. You want our lives to be lives of enthusiasm. Even when the walls are falling down around us, are we able to pray, come Lord Jesus. Make right all these wrongs. Finally, put an end to evil and to sin and to the the, the terrible things that we see on this fallen earth. Make it pure and holy and perfect. So this morning, we as a church body, we as a local church here at Rooftop, we, we pray together, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come rescue us and take us into the wedding celebration.